and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor. This year, many of the films receiving critical attention and awards are also entering discussion about race, gender, sexuality, and class, and how these factors affect criticism and cinema alike. As Amy Taubin points out in this week's podcast, this kind of discussion is really nothing new. There's a fresh urgency now as Moonlight, La La Land, Manchester by the Sea, I Am Not Your Negro, and other films enter the critical spotlight. But there's also an urgent need to define, sharply and honestly, what we're really talking about and how identity factors in. This week, I was joined by Ashley Clark, contributor to Film Comment, The Guardian, Vice, and Various. Amy Taubin, contributing editor at Film Comment and Art Forum. For an earnest discussion of the complexities that arise when talking about cinema and identity. Thank you both for coming. So today is sort of, it's something that's evergreen. That age-old question, do you privilege aesthetics or do you privilege the content based on some sort of political rubric that everyone who's left-leaning socially agrees on? And this is not a necessarily a due argument. This is sort of an argument that's been had since the 1990s. And it's something that is very much part of the discourse now where something like Moonlight, a film like Moonlight is... Uh, sort of graded and analyzed and said, well, is this, it's not a, is it a gay enough film? What does it say about black life? Are the things it's saying about black life acceptable? And then something like Boyhood, which Moonlight could have been called Boyhood, is, you know, excoriated because it's so white. It's, assume, it's obviously because it's about a straight white kid growing up in uh, Texas. It's, you know, Linklater intends this to be universal. It's called boyhood. It has this universality about it, whereas Moonlight, is it specific enough, even though some of the things that kid experiences in Moonlight are things I've experienced. My gay Vietnamese roommate who grew up in Houston experienced things that, uh, you know, there are lots of, there are lots of different ways of approaching this, but. Moonlight is an interesting example because... The, the conversation around Moonlight has been to, to mine it for its very idiosyncratic and specific portrayal of, of black life, but which is great. I mean, it's a very culturally specific film, and, and Barry Jenkins... I don't know where that conversation has been occurring, because it certainly hasn't been my experience of talking to people about it, nor my experience of writing about it, nor my experience of presenting Moonlight at the New York Film Festival <laughs> where there were no issues like that raised. So I don't know where that comes from. I'm, I'm, I'm really irritated that this doesn't begin in the 90s. I'm a very old person, but I was going through this beginning in the late 50s. It, is there form and content? Does the form have to reflect the content? Or when we talk about politics and film, should we be talking about strategy? Or should we be talking about, with, which of course we should. I mean, this, these are very, very old historic arguments. They go back to the 17th century, for Christ's sake. So I don't know really what we're talking about here. But one place that it might be interesting to start is, I don't know if you've seen it, the Raoul Peck film. Oh, you've written yeah. about it, right? I have indeed, You've yeah. written about it. I have. Yeah. And the extraordinary thing about the Raoul Peck film is that it is aesthetically a tremendous film, but the reason it's aesthetically a tremendous film is that it uses Baldwin as 
a window into his own consciousness from which you begin to re-see how t- all your kind of vague feelings that... Doris, Doris, Doris. Yeah. Why you kind of despised as a middle-class white woman, why you despised the whiteness of Doris Day. But you never despised it the way Baldwin despises it because he shows that it's what Doris Day is protects herself from ever seeing that gives her her power and her sense that whiteness is the only good. And the aesthetic in that film, the cut from this Doris Day mooning about should I or should I not give in to the lynched corpses hanging in the Mississippi swamp is extraordinary in terms of content, in terms of aesthetics, and you can't separate them. So I, I just never know what these arguments are about. Well, I think increasingly a big part of it is the acceleration of content in terms of online stuff, how much people are writing and how much things are getting shared. That cycle has rapidly accelerated, and we get things like La La Land or, right. or Moonlight or Boyhood, where a particular theme of the film becomes extrapolated and then becomes a talking point. So you have the un, you know the, the, that poor old Milan Kundera, whose whose construction has been bastardized, the unbearable whiteness of, of La La Land or the unbearable whiteness of Boyhood. I wrote about the unbearable whiteness of La La Land. I'm sure you didn't <laughs> call it the unbearable whiteness of La La Land. Um, but, you know, we have, I think, a conversation in, in, in scare quotes which seeks to invalidate films based on one thread. And if you're, <laughs> you know, if you're considered not woke enough in your reading of it, you know, you, you, you might get pilloried. And I think it's quite patronizing to an audience, someone like myself, who could go and sit and watch La La Land and enjoy aspects of it and feel very uncomfortable at the, the marginalization of the, the, the John Legend character, the way that he's seen as this threat to real jazz because he dares to involve a drum machine in his beat combo. Well, well, we wouldn't have felt that way if the if any of the in quotes authentic black musicians had become characters and had engaged with Ryan Gosling and had that been what the film was about, which is what it should have been about. And had there not been a middle-aged African-American couple waltzing when Ryan Gosling does his thing on the pier uh, at Malibu. uh, That was that was extraordinary to see. But one might not have noticed it if it hadn't landed in this particular year. It might have gotten away with it. It's when a film lands that has an effect. Boyhood landed at a totally different time. If Boyhood had landed this year, you would have seen it with different eyes. And to see it with different eyes is not necessarily distracting from its value uh, as an aesthetic object. It's just that you can't keep the other stuff out. Of course. What frustrated me about a lot of the, the backlash against Boyhood, the tyranny of the title, for one thing, had it not been called Boyhood with perhaps pretensions to universality, you know, you're looking at a very daring aesthetic experiment where he shoots for 12 years on, on 35 mil. It's a document of his development as a filmmaker. The aesthetics is, is tied into to him as a person, obviously. But the backlash against it, I think, also comes from a very real place of marginalization where critics of color have been completely marginalized and have not had a chance to necessarily shape the canon or 
shape ideas of what gets construed as universal. Right. So even when Boyhood came out, which is what, two, three years ago now, mm-hmm. there was still a, a kind of lively conversation around it. And, and some of the critiques around it, I thought were, were actually quite interesting, particularly about the representation of the, the Hispanic character, which se- seemed like a real misstep to me, yeah. but did not completely invalidate my enjoyment of the film. And I think part of it is part of these kind of takes, which are fiercely ideological and don't engage with the aesthetics. They patronize an audience who, who, who is an audience member who is hopefully capable of dividing these things up in their head and in their response and being thoughtful. Right. And I think, I mean, with regards specifically to like the Latino character in Boyhood, it was also a response to having a film set in Texas, all all around Texas, except for Austin, which is actually super white, that there are no Latino characters, really, except for this one guy that is accidentally serendipitously saved by Patricia Arquette's character. However, again, I don't think that invalidates any of what it's doing formally either. Um, or we had the same thing with, with girls. I mean, it seems, seems like we're stepping into a time machine. Right. But the girls' pseudo-controversy with Lena Dunham not casting any black people, you know, in, in a show set in New York. Right. Because, oh, but there are also, but know. I mean, to be fair, I think there are a lot of people who live in New York who are white who actually don't have any contact with... And who live with, in social bubbles. Yeah, they, so there is they a, don't have any contact with black people. <laughs> and I don't. It would be a very hard to make that bubble in Greenpoint. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be very hard, and I think that's where the objection comes. She wasn't making a show about four white women living in their parents' apartment on Park Avenue. Right. Uh, she was making a show about Greenpoint, and she had to go out of her way to make that show as white as it was. It's true. Just controlling who was on the street. Yeah. yeah uh, really. Well, think about Notting Hill, you know, from 1997. My dear compatriot Richard Curtis who <laughs> contrived to make the area Notting Hill uh, you know the, the story of the mangrove nine Claudia Jones this incredible Afro-Caribbean history a history of, of resistance and protest and somehow contrived to completely whiten this area package it and sell it to the world as an idealized vision of what London was right. or uh, Seinfeld because again like when I started this can we put a slap bass sound <laughs> just under <laughs> that keyboard <laughs> As we're, you know, as we're talking, it's very clear that this happens, everything, every single facet of this conversation, a backlash, a backlash to the backlash, an overcorrection, people on both sides taking it too far. That happens all the time. I think that's the other thing to realize is that the cycle that we're sort of identifying here, it, it comes generally. So in the 19, in the 1960s, 1970s, there was large, you know, obviously this large social movement bringing these issues to the fore, women's rights, gay rights, you know, rights for Latinos, blacks, Black Asians. power as well. Yeah. Yeah. But then, of course, there comes this, after that, there comes this period of conservatism that starts with somebody like Richard Nixon and then gets pushed, 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 pushed with someone like Ronald Reagan, who's actively privatizing things, defunding the arts, and then, you know, the Reagan years were also when a lot of like the first intersectional feminist writing was going on or sort of being incorporated into the academy, multiculturalism being incorporated into the academy as a praxis and being like, look, these syllabi are too white Western male. Let's diversify it. Let's start an African-American studies department. Let's start a women's studies department. Let's start, you know, having these conversations. And then Susan Faludi's Backlash, where that's something that was a book that was a huge. When, that did, was, when did that come out? That came out the same year as um, the Anita Hill 
okay. hearings. And so that was actually, that sort of propelled it, you know, even though Flutie is using, she's having it both ways with polls where she's saying, well, these, this Newsweek story is bullshit, where these sort of inspired by this Newsweek story that was saying that, oh, women who have jobs don't get married. So if you want to get married, you better not have a job, ladies. And like, don't focus so much on your career. You'll never have a baby. And if you wait too long, you can't have a baby if you wait too long. And like her sort of using these statistics to say, no, that's not true. But you're either saying statistics are really saying they're not. You know, like it's hard. It's a big subject, isn't it? I mean, I was interested in when you got to the 70s, that first kind of intriguing backlash, the... So the Reagan taxi driver and, and the disco demolition derby and things like right, that. Right, 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 right. You know, you wrote a wonderful monograph on taxi driver and that, you know, with, with Travis Bickle about to enter the White House might be a yeah. good a good point of, <laughs> to alight and talk about that film's resonance. Absolutely, yeah. And in particular, how, how, how tricky that film is to respond to. It has that one terrible problem in... Well, it has two terrible problems. Uh, and I think in many ways it is a great film. I mean, it's an extraordinarily powerful film. And as I wrote, it doesn't matter if it's a, a great film or not. It's a film that does not leave the American consciousness. It is an iconic film, an emblematic film of so many troubles. But it has two major flaws. One, they were very well aware of. They didn't dare make the Harvey Keitel character into a black pimp, even though at that particular moment in New York, 99% of men who were running prostitutes in all of New York City were black, and they didn't dare to do that because there would have been riots, blah, blah, blah. So that's problematic. For me, the other problematic thing is casting De Niro because De Niro is in so many ways, and I didn't write about this, the opposite of what Paul Schrader's Travis Bickle is. Paul Schrader's Travis Bickle comes out of the Midwest. He is this tortured, incredibly repressed, coming out of you know the most extreme fundamentalist Christianity at that point would have made that character. And there is no way for De Niro to disguise the fact that he is Italian-American Catholic, that there is this thing in his unconscious that governs, even when he's made a character, that you cannot imagine he is the character he's supposed to be in the film. And for me, that's always been a real, real flaw. So when you start talking about identity in film, there's so much that's in the subtext that's never spoken about that people perceive when they see the films, but it doesn't quite rise to the surface. I mean, for me, in Taxi Driver, yes, obviously Travis is a racist, but I kind of don't believe that he's a racist in that way. And so... They go through the steps of making him kill the guy in the uh, who comes to rob the grocery store. The young store. black kid. Yeah. Yeah, in the in the bodega. Yeah, but and that extraordinary anger that he has, which is what I wrote about in my preface to the new edition, when he's watching the show on TV. Soul Train. Yeah. Or American Bandstand. It's American yeah. Bandstand. It's not Soul Train, and you see him fixate on that 
African-American kid who looks exactly what Obama looked at a teenage, as a teenager. So that's an upper middle class or a well, middle middle class or a well-educated prep school looking black kid. And that's what drives him nuts. But that's not really articulated in the film. So that before Obama was elected, when I wrote about the film the first time, I didn't see that. You know, I saw that he was angry at black kids on that show in, in general, but not on the fact that this kid has risen in his class to be above Travis Bickle. I didn't see that at all. So films live through history and they change depending on where we are. I think the way growing up in England, Taxi Driver was always presented to me in, in magazines and in posters and, and through various mediated images was, was Travis Bickle as this kind of countercultural hero. Yes. Which to really? me, yeah, absolutely. Adorned on, you know, adorning the front of his, his Mohican, his kind of, his whole appearance is fetishized. And I found that very troublesome, mm -hmm. um, obviously growing up, like, when I actually watched the film, I was kind of shocked because he remains sympathetic for quite a long time in the film yeah. before he finally goes off the deep yeah. end. Then there's also the big problem of what Amy referred to was that at the end, the big massacre at the end, not only was Harvey Keitel's character supposed to be black, but everybody else in that, in that sequence was supposed to be black as well. But they knew they couldn't do that because it would have then become a supremely cogent articulation of white supremacist backlash rage, which we see in kind of more straightforward ways in films like Death Wish and Dirty Harry. And I think it's it's nice to be, you know, hands off and look at these films as pieces of art. But the, the, the ideology feeding into them, I don't think was ever adequately um, expressed to me in the writing that I read when I was growing up. And I think that's got a lot to do with who's doing the writing. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that kind of issue still plays today. Right. And I think it's important just to say this, even though we all basically know it, that there's never been a black head of a film studio and you can see that reflect you know there have been women who've been the heads of studios you wouldn't necessarily know it by the output but it has happened and that even though we've had a black president for the past eight years power in terms of you know financial power is still very much in the hands of the same people it was before he was the president mm -hmm. so it's like and, you know, now there's been definitely an attempt, at least in with the do democratization of media on the Internet. Uh, and Tyler Perry, by the way, oh. <laughs> if we're talking about black don't, studio. Don't, that's, Tyler, that's a whole other podcast. But please don't vote for Tyler. Please Perry. continue. Um, but there are, you know, people have the people have the option and the ability to put these criticisms out there, either with it's, you know, just on Twitter, if it's through a blog, through a, a collective, or in pretty well sort of older, more established media outlets like the New York Times has definitely made an effort to incorporate more diverse writers into their staff. But again, it's very much entertainment only and not necessarily harder. I mean, I've had I've heard this criticism before where it's like it's really just sort of limited to entertainment and anything outside of that, not really as diverse as it could be. And it's like, well, is it because you perceive entertainment as this thing that's sort of silly and not important or you are sort of interested? You really do believe that representation matters and you want to have people say, hey, this sucks. Hollywood, stop. I see where you're coming from. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the, the New York Times doing the, the watching while white 
um, article a few weeks ago by A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis, oh. which contained some some interesting points. But I had to sit through, through read it. I was reading it through gritted teeth because it's like I know that you're watching it worldwide. And Absolutely, it's not instead of in, yeah, and instead of donating this real estate to yourselves. Right, but as, as well, much, it, but as if as well it, intended as it was, right. I was starting to think, well, this is surely part of the issue. I'm sorry, I haven't read the piece. Oh, so movie critics who are largely white and male see the numbers, seem stubbornly reluctant to engage with race, at least as it pertains to whiteness. We may take on racism; we think we know it when we see it, but race and racism aren't the same thing. There are all sorts of barriers when it comes to discussing race, including institutional ones. The New York Times style book, for instance, states that race should be cited only when it is pertinent and its pertinence is clear to the reader. The idea is not to identify everyone by race, yet when is race not pertinent? And that's Manolo Dargis writing, which I, I feel is an earnest attempt to engage with, with issues. And it's an interesting insight, particularly into the New York Times style guide. But again, I'm sitting there thinking... This is prime real estate. Most black people, most people of color reading that know that race and racism aren't the same thing. Like we, right. So who are you talking to? And, and if you're really serious about these things, where do we go? Well, I beg your pardon. Uh, most people reading the New York Times, that would be a revelation. Most people reading the New York Times think that white people reading the New York Times think that race and racism is interchangeable so I they mean, don't see we, themselves as a race in a way they that's don't right. white people don't see themselves as raced and that is i guess something that's we need right. to really talk about when i was writing for the village voice we did an entire issue on what is the difference between race and racism which seems so ridiculous except it's something that people of color are totally i mean this is basic and white people do not know at all. So when Minola makes that argument in the New York Times, that's a really important clarification to make because I would say 99% of the people who read that piece, they'd never thought of it ever in their lives. When you read a, a text that is written in the first person, who is, the, who is that voice that you're imagining? Is it your own voice or is it something else? Is it something defined? Like it's a really impossible question no, but also it's like I understand like I understand the intent of something being like watching well white and the idea that it is it is it's sort of a polemic. But at the same time, it's like again, it's like should that be coming from two white people or should that be coming from someone else who could maybe sort of dig into the nuance of that well, question? Unfortunately, Wesley was busy that day, and since Wesley <laughs> is the only I'm glad uh, you said that because... black voice at the New York Times and is way overworked in that way, he just wasn't available. You get the one who becomes canonized, and this right. and this this. This feeds into a more serious and very pertinent issue at the moment, which is white, straight, male backlash against identity politics, as if, yeah. as if being a straight, white male is not in and of itself a very powerful identity with its own set of connotations. So we end up with, oh, shut up, you know, oh, just shut up, you black woman, you're, you're rabbiting on about this and that. It's identity politics. You're the reason Donald Trump won because you won't shut up. You won't stop going on about LGBTQI, you know. And, and you know, th this comes from right back to what you were saying a moment ago about the idea that whiteness, I guess, is not... It, we're still not at the point where we can have an open, honest conversation about whiteness being a race. Or that, or that, <laughs> white, or that white males feel that by pointing out the fact that they are white males or making fun of the behavior of other white males that they have somehow 
transcended or inocu- you know, like inoculated themselves against being racist or benefiting from the abs- like all the structures. Well, structural, it's, it, yeah. it's the interplay like, between individualism and, stru- and structures, yes. which is maybe the underpinning all of this because racism often gets um, ascribed to individual behaviors. You did something racist which is either a way to, to be punitive or to let someone off the hook, when we really need to be talking about the wider structures and without wishing to be too inflammatory at all. As I said, I think that piece that I, I read out a portion of was insightful, well-written and very well-meaning. But structurally, we're looking at a reflection of, of something that has informed a lot of the discourse that, that we've, we've suffered through for the last few decades. Again, the uh, Raoul Peck film about Baldwin has this extraordinary moment, as many extraordinary moments, but there is this moment where Baldwin is on, I think it's maybe Decavit or someone. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I love uh, this. And his fellow panelist is this literary critic, I believe, from Yale, who I never caught his name, and truly obnoxious. And the guy <laughs> is trying to tell Baldwin... Well, isn't it true you will you have more in common with me because we're both literary people than you have with other people of color? And Baldwin just took him apart and said, every minute of my life, every minute of my experience is conditioned by what I experience as a black I don't think he was out then. He didn't say gay man, but a black man. And of course, that that is my that is what I write about. I have nothing in common with you because you don't even begin to see that. And I think actually, Baldwin made his point strongly enough so that this guy looked uh, quite disconcerted. The all lives matter guy. I think there should, there should be a, a DVD special feature, which is just white people's reaction shots to James Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And, and he, the, the film itself, I mean, Peck, Peck does a wonderful oh, job a with, film. you know, with, he had the whole archive to work with, right. which is kind of simultaneously wonderful and hugely intimidating because he had one shot. And it took him many years. Yeah, it was a m- multi-year project and he made other films in the interim. But again, I, I suppose Raoul Peck's coming to prominence now in a way because he's engaging with Baldwin, but he's a filmmaker who's been making fantastic work for many years. Fatal Assistance and Murder in Paco were his last two films, and I'm not sure to what extent they saw the light of day here. Uh, they didn't. They really didn't. So hopefully it will spark a, a further interest in his it work. It would and be a great be. retrospective to have here. Yeah. We can go upstairs and tell them. To tie this back into the Raoul Peck movie, uh, what James Baldwin alights on continually is Americans' capacity for self for, for self delusion. Yeah. From Manifest Destiny to post racial America, with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act being these incredible solutions in the middle of it, whereby these all of these very unglamorous things like redlining and s- school segregation. Right. Or that there's that the, the video. Yeah, these are not sexy issues. No, no. But they underpin the fabric of of society. In the documentary, there's that great clip from like how to sell to middle class African Americans. They're a new market. Get ready. 
they have their own culture, but they still want to buy stuff from you. So here's how you go about doing that. Like that yeah. was such a, I mean, that's just such a fantastic document to have. But if, if we want to talk about selling, I mean, why don't we talk about OJ Simpson and oh, yeah. these two monumental pieces of work yes. last year, um, The People versus OJ Simpson, American Crime Story by Ryan Murphy and OJ Made in America. This taken together, two works which somehow managed not to overlap despite having the, the, cent, the, you know, the, the core of, of O.J. Simpson himself, it seemed to come along at an incredible moment. The, 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 the former, the, the OJ Sim, People versus O.J. Simpson, was a wonderful comment on the birth of, I think, celebrity culture with the Kardashians running around in the background and, and where we are now in terms of the, 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 what fame looks like, I guess, and, and, and how that intersects with, with Twitter and outrage and echo chamber and but, all these things. That but get also the around. news, also, but also the nightly news. The news yeah. and the, the, the advent of, of rolling news, nonstop news, we have to report on something. While the, the, the documentary was, was, I thought, very interesting on uh, OJ's canniness about how he could maneuver his own racial identity to his benefit at every step of the way, culminating with that extraordinary chapter in Las Vegas when he went full thug, you know, when he went full P.D. Wheatstraw. Or just, I mean, I feel <laughs> like, that. I, I mean, I've said this a million times, but that last episode could have been at least two more episodes, right? That was just such a, like, and especially, you know, like that weird little like prank show that he had. Like, Absolutely terrifying, like truly haunting stuff. Yeah, and it was just, but it was like, it went by, it just kept going by because again, it was sort of like, it was tantalizing, but I think Ezra Edelman is like a good enough director to know that it's like, you should be tantalized by this, whatever the fuck that was, but that's ultimately not the point. What the point is, is the fifth quarter beat down that he got in Las Vegas. But I mean, I think that documentary is just such a, you know, is, is a truly fantastic work. And it's like, it is, I'm sure they're both really irritated that those two things came out the same year, but they complement each uh, they other They complement each other beautifully. And I think uh, at heart, they both underscore the, the mutability of race as a construct, which we all know it is, at a time when the conversation is ever more, no pun intended, black and white. You know, yeah. I should I should be clear and say that often the diversity conversation, particularly in England, where I'm from, will talk about diversity as if it is a black and white issue and, and other uh, groups are somehow marginalised from this conversation. Obviously with a black president or a mixed race president. You know, He's in, half white too. Exactly. You know what I mean? People I mean, who say that. So, so these, you know, the way we talk about race in England is different from America. Terms like mixed race are... Uh, are much more common in England, I think, and, and how you how one identifies. You know, Halle Berry, the black woman. You know, she's mixed race. Her mum's white lady from Liverpool. But these are conversations that I don't think we're necessarily going to be having because they're quite complicated and nuanced. You want to hear from the the horse's mouth. You know, how does Halle Berry identify? How does you know? You can read uh, Obama's books, but we're all. I think we're often striving for issues of race to be simplified so they can fit into a. A, a more kind of streamlined narrative so we can pick our sides. I'd much rather we were in a position where we could be nuanced about it. I doubt, to go back to what I think you were bringing in this segment by talking about, I doubt we're there in the way that the media uh, and, and journalism itself is fracturing as yeah. content is on a the, ha the content hamster wheel where I wonder whether people are actually reading things or as, as my colleague Nick Pinkerton has, I think a quote from him, does reading exist anymore or is it just scanning for acceptable attitudes to adopt? Um, and I think that's something um, that I'm constantly thinking about when, when I'm writing and when I'm 
Whether I'm writing or sat staring at Twitter for six hours, we live in interesting times. It's also extremely interesting that 13th, uh, the Raoul Peck, James Baldwin film, and O.J. Made in America, these three documentaries, hopefully they all, all three of them will get nominations, but they certainly all three have been nominated. And the original thing that I said about strategy, I think they're interesting to compare in terms of the strategy of how you make a film that deals with race and racism, that talks to an audience that isn't an audience of two people. And I'm sure on all those filmmakers' minds, those three filmmakers, they were thinking about that. You know, maybe Ava, in deciding she wanted an hour-and-a-half film that could play to a particular audience that would not sit around for a three-hour film, maybe she cut that subject short. I think, you know, the amazing thing about O.J., made in America, is that it was really conceived for an audience that watches ESPN and speaks absolutely to those that audience and is a binge watch for them. That's what's so amazing about it. And the Raoul Peck film doesn't attempt to do that at all. I dare say that the Raoul Peck film will have a very, very limited audience simply because the connections that you have to make the the way that that film can't exist unless you as a viewer can go inside Baldwin's perspective. Um, or just have a familiarity with his works. Like you well, can't... I don't even think you need to do that. But I do think you need to be able to make the connections he makes at every step of the way to uh, uh, construct his own... Unconscious. Well, we're talking about form and well, uh, ideology versus aesthetics. Whether or not they can be separated, I don't know. But with the form specifically of, of Raoul Peck's film, there are no talking heads to hold your hand through it. Right. To kind, there are no kind of pleasant chapter breaks. It does. It does not pander, and it's deliberately designed to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So I suspect Amy could be right in in saying it has a limited audience. But the people who do see it. I don't think could could fail to be deeply moved. Well, right. It. Yeah. Cuz I think I think what you're getting at is like we're you know we're talking about sort of this fracturing that's going on. It's not entirely bad. The idea that there could be these three very different films constructed with these formally very different but touching on the same subject that they're all sort of reaching those audiences and I think, you know, the the idea that there's this seven plus hour documentary about about OJ that that so many people like I mean just the first episode the first three episodes I think are just so such a fantastic work of like intersectional criticism that I've you could never put into a 90 minute film like fundamentally every little facet that it's exploring and giving it's it's not spoon feeding it to you, but it's also it, it's it's asking you to be respond to this material critically. But it's also just I don't know. I, I think it's phenomenal work, and I think it's like an immense public service again that it was like ESPN just put it up and was like, you know, don't feel constricted. Make it as long as you as it needed it to be. Yeah, that yeah. they gave him unlimited support. Like that's I think that's a beautiful thing. But then also that just how sports in this country functions that it is really a place where 
black and white people can sort of come together in a way that isn't possible in other aspects of American life. Like, it, and always kind of has, well, and well, before, uh, after, at a certain point in the 20th century, it could happen before things were integrated. Not so much. After that, yes, everyone well, sort of started coming together. But I'm very curious about how the viewers that you are postulating for OJ Made in America, how many of them relate, because one thing that's very important in that whole story is the relationship to the LAPD. Yes. And that black people's feelings about the OJ trial was shaped by the impossible racism and brutality of the LAPD. So anyone triumphing over the LAPD would be a hero. And I'm very curious if anyone watching that film then makes the connection to Ferguson or to to all the police brutality that is much more widespread than, or are they just watching this about a black celebrity who, you know, gets into this complicated or whether situation? Whether it fits into the the emerging post-serial trend making a murderer there's something incredibly salacious and compelling about it It has all the ingredients anyway but I think what you were talking about about just how detailed granular is about setting the scene of LA and and um so we showed like boys in the hood uh, at black star at the BFI and 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 I was kind of I tried to place that in concert with the stuff that Charles Burnett was doing and, and Haile Jerima you know there's this yeah. whole kind of LA history which somehow I think Ezra Edelman did a really good job aesthetically of drawing together yeah. and this this kind of panorama of of, of LA social life um, and and institutional life. I think it was a beautiful job, and I think there was what was great about it. There was enough there just on the pure salaciousness and compelling storytelling of it to kind of satisfy people who just wanted to know what happened, why did this happen, but yeah. also for anybody who was interested in knowing more and drawing connections. With, with the 13th, we have that Tanahasi Coates piece in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations that came out, did a very similar thing. It drew, yeah. the, drew that connection all the way from slavery to, 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 to convict leasing, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, drew that big line, and I think the 13th condenses that and it leaves you in no doubt as to the fact that you need to kind of draw that connection to today. But there's a very pernicious, there has been a pernicious idea up until fairly recently, I think, that this stuff was in the past. Right. We had a podcast about this a while ago, about filming death. Yes. To tie in with Nick's Mondo Mondo series and how you respond to images of death and destruction. And it's a shame that it's taken that level of horror to, I think, persuade some people that this stuff hasn't ever gone away. It's just that we can perhaps see it now. Or that it existed in the first place. Because yeah. again, it's like for so many, I think, white Americans, for the maybe the less extreme Travis Bickles out there, the Travis Bickles who have sublimated it. The and ch live ch in the chill, chill Bickles. The Chill Bickles who live in the suburbs, who have generationally grown up around other white people who maybe have, they have a black friend. But they don't really talk to them oh, about this stuff. The black president. What's the problem? I, mean, I voted for him twice. Yeah. What are you saying? Yeah. But the 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 idea that the that there was just no concept that this was happening. That the idea that somebody who your taxes go to protect you are supposed to protect all of us are actually committing murder, a very cold blooded murder. That that was just something that had never occurred 
to a lot of people. And then now it's like, no, not only is this is not a new thing. This has been going on for a very long time. It never stopped happening. But then also the idea that it's also desensitizing and that people, again, because there are so many different choices in media that you can sort of create your own narrative based on this visual evidence and say... It was ever thus with, with, with the moving image that two people can see the same footage and see right. completely different things. Yeah. Can, do you mind if I take, take us back to, to Moonlight, right, yes. right to the start? Because what, what I was getting at was that people have spoken about Moonlight as this revelatory kind of tour of the, the black experience. And I just wonder whether, you know, we've had this Manchester by the Sea thing uh, yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Critics don't tend to talk about this as a portrayal of, of whiteness. What are you? What are your guys' thoughts on this? I, I'm just, I don't just know. generally. In terms of writing about it, particularly just critically, and, and how the critical discourse yeah, around. Yeah, I mean, things. I got an email from my friend Joan Dupont, who is a critic and who saw Manchester by the Sea, and she saw she was very, very moved by it, and she thought the film really engaged the horror of that particular middle-class New England life where the husbands and wives never talk to each other and the guys just go out and get drunk. And she saw it as a particularly, particular depiction of white middle-class nominally Protestant life and particularly the estrangement of the men and the women. I just don't like the movie. And what I don't like about the movie, I think it's a fine movie. I mean, it it just seems to me to be a melodrama that I've seen a hundred times. And when I find myself saying, it's a melodrama I've seen a hundred times, it may be more finely done, but it seems profoundly uninteresting to see that story. I feel terrible for that guy. I don't see how you live with yourself after that thing would have happened but I don't give a fuck. And really what I'm saying is I don't give a fuck because of the whiteness of it. Uh, And that may not even be conscious when I'm sitting there watching and saying, I don't give a fuck about this. In part because it doesn't engage with that ever. Uh, Which is why I didn't give a fuck about La La Land. Because it doesn't engage with it, even though he's pretending he's the savior of black jazz in L.A., which is really what made me crazy. But it doesn't engage with it at all. And I don't know how Manchester by the Sea could have, since it exists in this very rarefied white society. That is a terrible problem. I mean, it's a a regional... I feel like it's such a... In terms of, like, the way religion... Religion and class really can shape an outset in a way that people in the United States can't always articulate. I think that it's exploring that so... Manchester by the Sea explores that so well, just even in the little moment where the nephew meets his mom again after many years and says, oh, you know, they're really Christian. And his uncle says, you know, we're Christians too. And then, (laughs) but also, but the idea that it's like, they're divided in a way that's... They have this unbridgeable divide this son has this unbridgeable divide between him and his mother. That has nothing to do with childhood drama. It's just this way that she's chosen to live her life with goofy ass Matthew Broderick. That is like he can't. It can't be bridged. Like yeah. I mean, it, so you're saying ultimately it is it's, it is a culturally specific film. Yeah. Oh yeah. As, it as, is. As, is, as is Moonlight. Is. But yeah. I, exactly. But the way that they're spoken of, broadly speaking, doesn't seem to reflect. 
Well, that's what's infuriating to me. That I mean, that you know, it would be the Manchester by the Sea is being beaten with this stick that it's like so white and hetero and it's like well that's but that's yes that is where 10th Lonergan out of anywhere in the United States chose to set this drama and chose to have these things happen he chose it I mean he has a personal connection to that area like he would go there in the summer or something with his stepfather personal filmmaking but it's a person yeah it's a personal thing just like Barry Jenkins went to the same elementary school as the guy who wrote the play black boys look blue in the moonlight But also, I mean, when I'm responding to in Manchester by the Sea and what I'm responding to in Moonlight is how well those two films very differently are exploring the psychology of their characters, how they are reacting to their environments on an aesthetic level. I think probably because he has a background in playwriting, Kenneth Lonergan has has marvelous dramaturgy. I think he just just the little conversations, the way that these little scenes happen, and it's not quite... You know, at the end that there's no big triumphant moment where it's like, yeah, he's okay again. He's never going to be okay. He's never going to be okay. He can't ever allow himself to be okay because he's this self-flagellating New England Protestant descended from Puritans. He's so bottled up and masculine that he can't ever. But It's not a new narrative, no. But I still thought it was wonderfully done. But the form of it is a very, very old-fashioned melodrama. Yeah. And maybe my problem with it is, at this moment, can you simply resurrect this old-fashioned melodrama form, fulfill it exceptionally well, and still have anything that is meaningful to anyone who's outside of that culture. See, everyone is going to see Moonlight as culturally specific because the characters within it are so aware of how they are operated on by the power structure that we don't see in the film. That's what produces them. So Moonlight can do that. But there's also a history of not having those films exist. Right, but also, and this is something which I'm very... I, I can't quite wrap my head around. Hitchcock was great about showing the absolute perversity of white patriarchy, even though he did not necessarily know he was doing that. The reason those films live and seem great is that they are a total indictment of patriarchal white male culture. I don't think that Kenneth Lonergan's film does that. I detected a slight sentimental streak in it, which I think put me off it. I don't think there's anything sentimental about it. I don't think that, you know, I don't think anything about that film is like, isn't it so sad more people don't live their life like this? I don't think there's anything. I think there are moments that despite this horrible burden of like all the society around them, they can, an uh, an uncle and his nephew can sort of come together for a little bit. But this is where form comes in because my issues with it were very structural in terms Mm. of the, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for the the three or four people who haven't seen it yet or the three or four people who are listening. But I would say that the way Lonergan chooses to structure his film with with not one but two two tragedies and, and withholds, and in tandem with some of the musical choices he uses, adds a very kind of melodramatic streak and air to it, which I found counter to the 
doggedly unsentimental tone that I think he was pursuing. I feel like I've said this before on this podcast, but just that the music for me is saying everything that character can't. That for him... Yeah, but does it have to be that familiar? And does it have to be that overbearing? I, and that's, a, I, that's, that's, a, a, that's yeah. a real question, because the first time I saw it, I said, oh, no, how could he think he's going to get away with this? And then for a second... It seemed to me he had gotten away with it, and then he did it again. And that was, that's where the whole thing fell apart for me. Well, I don't know how to say it, because for him, like for that character, it is paradise lost. And it may not be paradise for all of us, but it's like, it, it, worked, it worked on me. Is there anything else you guys wanted to get to? Oh, there is something I would like to mention. Today is the day that Sky Arts in the UK decided to cancel. Ah, yes. Oh, yes. A show which starred Stockard Channing as Elizabeth Taylor, Brian Cox as Marlon Brando, and... Which, which is super rude. And Joseph Fiennes. The rudest of all. As Michael Jackson. In, in, a, in a wacky rendering of a possibly apocryphal, probably apocryphal story following 9-11, in which Marlon Brando, Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Jackson did a road trip. And this has been killed before it was even shown to the world. So footage of it is going to become the new Christine, Christine Chubbuck. Or the new uh, The Day the Clown Cried. Yes. And I thought that was a wonderful kind of perfect storm of the impossibility of actually getting your head around identity politics. And, you know, you've got this kind of un- unparalleled figure in Michael Jackson who went from this cherubic black boy with the big afro in the Jackson 5 to whatever he looked like in the um, You Are Not Alone video with his shining chest by the uh, the Roman baths. And this kind of spark, I, I wrote about it ages ago. I wrote about it in the context of how I think that the British media in general is very insensitive to issues of, of race generally. And, you know, the, the black and white minstrel show was only cancelled in 1978, which was on the BBC. And that was at a time when actors like Norman Beaton and Don Warrington, Carmen Monroe, were actually on television. You know, and on on one channel they were doing their best with limited roles, and on the other channel, you've got guys in blackface makeup, romping around. No, no, 1978, um, and there are still comedians today, like Matt Lucas and David Walliams. Um, but don't you ever s- criticize them for that? Well, exactly. How dare you? Yeah, how dare you? You being sensitive. The, 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 These the, bubble the, people. The incredible <laughs> speed with which people's hackles rise when you want to address issues like this and you're accused of being oversensitive. It's political correctness gone mad. Political correctness doesn't exist. All we're after is empathy. You know, I'm not saying that somebody of a different race should not make a film about different experiences. You know, this is this is old stuff. You know, this goes way back beyond bell hooks, but in one of her most intriguing essay she writes about the banality with which Waiting to Exhale was was brought to the screen by Forrest Whitaker, a black director, and she talks about how interesting directors like John Sayles and Jim Jarmusch are when they operate in black idioms, when they make films about jazz and blues, and how their empathy and curiosity is what matters. So we're not talking about essentialism or territorialism, but to go back to uh, Michael Jackson, uh, it was just a wacky story. Look it up. I mean, it's Completely bizarre and and perfect it, for our day. Was it meant to be a a satire? We we can't see it. We th- and that's why it's so perfect because they were gutless. They pulled it before anyone had a chance to see it. If you're gonna be, if you're gonna have a brass neck enough to commission and actually make something which is obviously going to upset people, 
if you're that, if you're clueless enough to know, to not to know that casting a white middle-class actor, a white British middle-class actor, best known for Shakespeare in love, <laughs> as the greatest black entertainer of his generation, if you're not smart enough to know that that's going to raise hackles, then, you know, that's not my problem. But if you're going to have the confidence to commission it and make it, at least let people see it and engage <laughs> well, not just, with yeah, it and criticise it and it get angry about it. Because again, it's not like they shot it and they were about to edit it and someone was like, whoa, this isn't okay. This is like a week before it was going to end. Paris Jackson tweeted about it. Yeah. And I think someone probably said something involving the words lawyer or lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. And they, they pulled the plug on it. And that, I think... We do sometimes enter a territory where we're not prepared. All that does is, to, to, to borrow a friend's phrase, it puts a coin in the political correctness gone mad brigade. Oh, what? You're not even going to show it? Censorship. I would rather they stood by their principles, showed us that film, and allowed a proper conversation around it to take place. We can criticise it. I, As a, a sentient viewer, I can sit there and talk about the cinematography and the editing and the style of it and appreciate things in it whilst also recognising that central casting is, is wrong-headed and detrimental. And again, we're always talking about the interplay between form, aesthetics and ideology. I don't think they're they're divisible, even though I've, I've kind of erred on that side before, but my, my thoughts are evolving about it all the time. On that note, let's all be brave. <laughs> And if you're going to commission something racist and you're going to put all these resources into it, put it out into the world. Let people judge. Oh, I think stand by it. Well, yeah, because, yeah, I mean, it is just like any time where a publication runs. I mean, even down to like the graphics, there was this thing in Time magazine about this guy writing about his hometown in New Jersey and how it had been overrun by Indian guys. And like, oh, Joel Stein. I think yeah, I think that was it, him. He was writing about Edison. Yes, and how it's which like I have oh, a they were connection to and like oh, they wear so much oh, they wear so much uh, perfume. It's crazy, and it's like even like the graphics, like the text was written in like that fake racist Indian font. I don't even know how to describe. Is that the technical? It. Yes, yes. As wow. a, somebody who works at a magazine, that is what there's. You can check it in your font box. Check but the next <laughs> issue of Film Comment for the <laughs> debut of racist Indian font. <laughs> But that that he could pitch the story, he would write it out, that people would, you know, multiple editors, there would be fact checkers, there would be people at this magazine, this August publication, that would look at no, it and be like... What's problem with it? And just uh. put, and it goes to press, and then they have to put a retract, you know, issue an apology in it. Like, what is the point of any of these things that are meant to ensure quality if you can't clock that at some level or someone just be like, uh, excuse me, maybe we could just use a courier on this. <laughs> but but I, to go back to what you were saying earlier about the New York Times piece and how actually to to that audience, the, the, the watching Wild White piece might actually be quite, quite revelatory to, to that audience. So I don't want to be too harsh. And I do think that people who are writing about race in an honest and, and self-reflective way do deserve to be, you know, do deserve some credit. Yeah, they, I mean... As, as, as gritted as my teeth <laughs> may be sometimes when I'm reading these things. This is something that has become more developed in relation, I think, to talking about sexuality than it has been in relation to race. And that is the degree that there are white people like me or like Manola who've grown up all themselves lives feeling like outsiders and subversive, although we have white skin privilege, but 
outsiders and subversive compared to Tony Scott, who is archetypically a times man and probably feels at a loss for that because that isn't an easy identity these days if you have any awareness to bear. So I think in that discussion, there was that difference running under it. In When I was young, and uh, all through the 60s actually, I was an actress, and I was a kind of successful actress. And my two successful roles were roles that no one wanted to cast me in because I am obviously an American Jewish girl, uh, and that's how I look. And so I played uh, a Scottish child to teenager in the prime of Machine Brody, and I played a Midwestern kind of hooligan girl in another play, and they were very successful, but I mean, I had to fight to get these parts. On the other hand, I was regularly cast throughout the 60s as mixed race. I played mixed Native American and white, got thrown in a pit and pelted with stones by my classmates. I, um, I played uh, mixed race Caribbean. And suddenly one day, 66, my agent sent me up for a role and they looked at me and they said, we think we would like to have a black actress for this. And I said, hallelujah. I'm really sorry I'm here. And it kind of turned. But the degree to which that was perfectly acceptable and yet no one would ever cast me as Jewish because they would be accused of stereotyping what Jewish people look like. So I ran neck and neck for whatever that young, blonde, blue-eyed English actress was who was in that art. Otto Preminger's Exodus. So I ran neck and neck for that role, and I wasn't cast because I looked too Jewish. <laughs> right? Not an Exodus. <laughs> and uh, oh. I was thinking about Leila Goldoni in, in Shadows, who who I always just assumed was biracial, as you say here, but is, was Italian-American. I was cast as the King Ptolemy, the, the King of Egypt in the film Cleopatra. If anybody is still listening at this deep, dark point of the podcast, you can go on YouTube. Uh, Cleopatra directed by Frank Rodham. And you can see how, how I, uh, a mixed race black, what do, we, what do we say on the on the forms that we fill in? Mixed race, white and black Caribbean. <laughs> I can't fill that in here on, on the doctor's forms here. It's It's black or other. Sometimes they have mixed race. Do they? Yeah. Okay. They're trying to be... How how I, you know, played a, a an Egyptian king, and I, I'll await your feedback in the comments. <laughs> but it's all so bloody complicated, you and I'm like gl- <laughs> I'm I'm just glad we're, we, we I'm glad we're having the, this conversation, honestly, because you get when you talk about race and gender, you do. It's so easy to retreat into a corner to find people who who you agree with, or you you know the, the Stuart Hall piece that we didn't reference today, which is called some politically incorrect pathways through pc which is a wonderful piece and you can find a pdf online conversations about race are kind of tough um so i think the more of them that we we have the better yes and and identity in general excuse me and i also i think what you both just brought up about your own experiences as actors 
is that it's not just the director making the call. It's uh, casting agents and people who do the casting. And I think some of the most awful, like just patently awful things you can read about like what, you know, are these casting calls for commercials or for films and how they think of someone who is Latina, who's going to play a maid and what they think that body type is and what they think of even it's a very minor character the specificity and the words that they use that you can't use anywhere else but that if you're an actor or an actress you're just exposed to every day and you either have to sort of you know accept it and work or you fight against it like it's kind of Tim Burton getting lambasted for uh maybe not being as woke as he could on that fucking horrible Miss Peregrine's magical bus I don't know what the hell that thing was but like that's not all Tim. It's not just because, again, this is an industrial art form. There are multiple people at multiple stages making all sorts of decisions. And, you know, Tim Burton may not be the most enlightened person on the planet, but there are a hundred other people underneath him, right next to him, that are probably feel the same or worse. Almost certainly. On that cheerful note, <laughs> let's end it. But before we do, could we go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked? Yeah, uh, I rewatched Eastern Promises last night by Ooh. David Cronenberg, which has Viggo Mortensen and his cock and balls flapping around a bathhouse, beating up two people. Amazing, amazing sequence. But the film I really want to uh, mention is Tony Erdman, which I finally caught in the week. And I think it's just a wonderful, very moving piece of work. I can't remember the last time I sat and watched a film and cried through laughter and through uh, sadness and emotion. Uh, please go and see it if you can. Yeah, I will second Tony Erdman. I mean, Tony Erdman and Moonlight were my two movies of the year. I haven't seen anything since. They were both in New York Film Festival that, except for the Raoul Peck movie, that was, which was also in the New York Film Festival, but I looked at it more recently. And that's coming out on February 3rd. I think it's Metrograph that's going to show it. I don't know if it's here. It might be here, too, but... I would say that those were my three movies of the moment. What's yours? And, well, okay, I saw two comedies recently. They're two very different comedies. One was Keanu, starring <laughs> Key and Peele, and uh, a very good, very well-placed Will Forte. And we're talking about race, but also to talk about kittens and how cute that cat was. It killed me. The movie, it's a totally, it, it, a movie that barely abides by the very fragile logic that it establishes at the beginning, but still pretty funny. Still pretty funny. It had moments, there are definitely moments where it's like, okay, this the code switching is like getting a little tiresome. A George Michael moment in that There movie are multiple too. George Michael yeah. moments where he like, he has a fantasy, <laughs> he has like a fantasy that he's in, he's in the faith video. Like it's like his, it was wildest fantasy come true. And then, you know, sort of explaining, like doing this very sort of like flipping it and be like, oh, yeah, father figure, missing a father, <laughs> just going on and on and on about that. Pretty funny. Also, the Anna Ferris part was really funny. But then I also rewatched Step Brothers, which is really, I think, one of the best movies of the new millennium. It's just so funny from start to finish. I get I can barely breathe when I watch it just because there's just so many little things where they clearly just made a choice that Will Ferrell and oh fuck, John C. Riley and John C. Riley are children. They're literally little boys 
as 40 year old men and they just do it so like every you know the bunk bed thing they're at dinner drinking you know parents are drinking wine and they're just drinking these giant cups of like bright orange liquid (laughs) bright orange like kid pop i don't even know how to describe it so good i love it that was the alternative title for boyhood (laughs) yes kid pop anyway thank you both for coming this was thank you for having me it's been a pleasure You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.